Good evening, family. If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn them to Psalm 133. So we have one more week in the Psalms of Ascents, uh, and then we'll have our RUF service, and we'll begin a seven-week study in the book of Ruth uh, this fall, and that'll take us into uh, the holiday season. Psalm 133, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word, and we thank you that uh, you are with us, that the Lord Jesus says that Those who worship you in spirit and in truth will come to him, that you're seeking such worshipers. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit would be at work, and we pray that the truth from Scripture, your truth, would prevail upon this hour, and that you would build up your people, and that you would perfect your church that you would illumine areas in our lives where repentance and confession is needed, and that you will once again, Lord, allow us to uh, believe uh, the good news of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would forgive me my sins and also the sins of our hearers. Would you remove all distractions that we might hear from you? I pray this for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. So, if uh, you had a calendar and you were to circle these three dates, April the 8th, May 28th, and October the 2nd of this year, those would have been the dates where if you were an Israelite and you were living uh, in the days before Jesus, that no matter what you were doing or what was going on in the earth, you would have had to make a pilgrimage from wherever you lived to Jerusalem, to the city of God, as the people of God. Now think about that. Amidst the virus, amidst job loss, amidst miscarriages, and everything else that happens to God's people under the sun, that those three dates would have been circled on your calendar for a pilgrimage. Let that sink in. That God not only wanted his people to be in his city, but he also wanted his people to be together as they journeyed to his city. That's going to be one of the overarching themes of our passage this morning. Is this idea of togetherness and unity as we journey home to be with God. And that wasn't just important for them back then. It's important for us. And so I want to kind of unpack this. You know, why? Like, like, why is that a thing? Like, why would God 
have those dates in mind on the calendar? What is it? And how do we get it? So the first point is something else is good and pleasant. If you're writing notes, something else is good and pleasant. There's a reason I'm using something else, because I think, if, I think we miss what our original audience would have easily connected. In Genesis 1, it is good is a refrain that's used over and over and over and over again. Just as a refresher, when God said, let there be light, there was light. And God said, it is good. On the third day of creation, when he created the water and the seas and the dry land that he called the earth, he said it was good. When he caused the earth to sprout forth vegetation, plants and fruits and trees, he also said again that it was good. On the fourth day, when he made the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night, to separate light from darkness, he also said again that it was good. On the fifth day, when he let the waters swarm and teem with living creatures and sea creatures and also birds, he also said that it was good. And on the sixth day, when the earth brought forth living creatures and livestock and creeping things and beasts and then humans, he said it was good. And then it was very good. And if you turn over to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. In the opening chapters of the Bible, creation is called both good and it's called pleasant. Now think about this, from God's perspective, as he sat in kingly repose, as he looked at creation, he could see that it turned out exactly as he designed it to. Nothing was marred, nothing was broken, and in that sense, it's good and it's pleasant, but think about it from a, a human's perspective. It's also good and it's also pleasant because if you remove the sun, and if you remove the moon, and if you remove the seas, and if you remove the plants, and if you remove anything that he created that was good and pleasant, then guess who does not live on this earth? We don't live. Now, think about the knee-jerk reaction that I think we feel, and this is God's common grace. When any of those things are threatened, how do you feel when you see a polar bear who does not have sheets of ice to live on? Doesn't that kind of do something to you? How do you feel when you, see, when you see plastic upon plastic upon plastic in the ocean and it's destroying the ocean? Don't you kind of feel some kind of way? What about when you hear that certain species like pandas are on the endangered list? Don't we kick into wanting to conserve and preserve? What about when we realize that aerosol can destroy the ozone layer? Ozone layer. I mean, people started to actually rethink how we use chemicals and how we use the containers they come out of. In other words, 
a knee-jerk reaction when those good and pleasant things that God created starts to be sabotaged and starts to be attacked and start to be eradicated is to conserve it and to fight to preserve it. Now, notice how this psalm begins. The same language. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. You see, I think if we were Jews who heard this for the first time, our minds would instantly go to the beginning of time. And it's as if David is saying, and this is my translation, right? Behold, let me get your attention. There is something else that is good and pleasant, and it is just as vital for human flourishing as the sun, the plants, water, animals and creeping things and guess what it is it's when brothers dwell together in unity that is a mystery that it's that important so something else is good and pleasant in the bible that's not in genesis 1 and genesis 2 it's in psalm 133 And I want to call this unified togetherness. And we're going to unpack what what this is. But just from the first line, however we unpack it, we must first look at this as being good. And if it's good, then we should be wise enough to protect it when it is threatened, to long for it when it is missing in our lives to confess and repent when we detect actions and motives in our own hearts that are against it, and when we detect others who profess the name of Christ who seem to only stir up the opposites, conflict, and separatism, then we must confront them in love and warn them of the error of their ways. There's a reason why the New Testament is full of exhortations like these. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and then Paul lists these other things. Enmity, strife, dissensions, and divisions. That's Galatians chapter 5. As for the person who stirs up division, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned, Titus 3. Jude 1, you must remember the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ that in these latter days there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions in the body, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Jude chapter 1. Why this constant warning of driving people to be divided and separate. Why these warnings? Because being unified and together 
is good and pleasant. Not only in the sight of God's people, but in the sight of God himself. Something else is good and pleasant that's not in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And it's united togetherness. Now, second point. What is it? I want to take a closer look at this united togetherness. As I kind of try to translate this and work through this, I, I actually think it's, it's two things and not one. The, ten, the, the tendency is when we read this psalm is we focus on the unity. And I think when you step back and look at the language that's used here, that unity is a part but, but, but there's another chord that's there. And so that when you braid these two ideas together, then you get something beautiful. And the first word there is to dwell. It means to linger with one another. It means to be settled into. It means to literally sit down and kick your feet up and get comfortable it means to, it's even used when two people live in the same home together. In other words, that first idea is that of presence and proximity. It is good when God's people are near each other and with each other. And enjoying one another's company, like, 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 that's good. But the unity piece there, it's this image that in the midst of our diversity, that we're also united. The idea there is togetherness, being on the same accord, being one despite being different. And so what's the point? Unified togetherness, I think it's two things coming at us. One is proximity and presence, but God not only desires presence, he also wants us to be at peace and united under a common purpose. And so therefore, it's twofold. It's unified and it's togetherness. And this is important, right? Because one might be unified, but not be allowed through providences and bitter providences to be proximate to one another. And one might foreseeably be near one another, but the reason that they're near one another is not for peace, it's for war. And so what, what God is doing is saying, it's both. I want you near, I want you to dwell, I want you to linger, I want you to love, I want you to be with one another and I want you to be unified. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, he says, Longingly, the imprisoned Apostle Paul calls his dearly beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to come to him that he might be with him and next to him. Remembering the congregation in Thessalonica, Paul prays night and day exceedingly that he might see their faces 1 Thessalonians 3. 
the aged John knows that his joy will not be full until he can come to his own people and speak face to face instead of writing with them with ink. You, you get this apostolic longing where despite prisons, despite beatings, despite persecution, even having to write, that is secondary to being able to be with the body. So why would David say that this unified togetherness is good and pleasant? Why would he esteem it so highly? Look, we don't know when this psalm was written, but I think we can understand why it's written. Here's what we know from 2 Samuel 3. David was from the tribe of Judah. Saul, who was king at the time, was from the tribe of Benjamin. And what 2 Samuel says literally happens is that these two houses, they warred for a very long time. So those from the tribe of Judah didn't want to wait on David to be king. They wanted to make him king. Saul's group did not want to let go of the kingship And because they were either impatient or didn't want to let go, these two tribes were fighting one another. And then a man named Abner, who was of Saul's lineage, was, it reads as if he was accused falsely of a crime by Saul's son. And he says, I have only showed you and your father steadfast love. And because you have done this, may it be so to me if David does not become king of Israel and Judah from Dan in the north to Bathsheba in the south. And Abner walks out of the house of Saul and that allegiance, and he goes to David and he makes a covenant with David and he declares that I am no longer there, I am with you and when I come with you, we will not war. And David gives him a test, prove your allegiance. And he does. Well, meanwhile, David's hitman, Joab, doesn't like that Abner has switched sides. He thinks that he's tricking David. And so Abner takes it upon himself to go, no, Joab takes it upon himself to go and kill Abner. And David's response, when Abner is killed, he cried, he grieved, he would not eat. He gave Abner a noble burial. And when the people of Israel saw that David truly did not want him dead, it says that they were pleased. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your bone and flesh. And the Lord said, You shall be my shepherd over my people, prince over Egypt. And on that day, now think about this, when the people saw Not when they heard hearsay about what David was like, 
But when they saw him, when they were close enough to see him grieve and lament and to cry and to give this guy a noble burial, it says when they saw that, they knew this is our king, our king who unites us, who is for us. And it is on that day in the very next chapter after they are united, guess what comes back to Jerusalem? The ark that had been gone for 20 years. It does not come back as long as Israel are fighting one another. It comes back when they put the weapons down. And it could be there that David pins this song. Lord, I see what I've been missing. We've been fighting one another, and behold, it is good when we dwell in unity right here together and right after they got the ark back. The text starts to go through battle after battle after battle that David won. The message is loud and clear. When they're dwelling together and at peace with one another, they flourish. Their enemies don't stand a chance against them. God's ark, which symbolizes his sacred presence, is back in their midst. And David says, it was good. Now, what was it like? This is when he reaches for metaphor. He, this isn't the first time we've seen people on the journey use images to convey spiritual truth. And he does it again right here. And the two images, we'll get to one of them now, it's, it's a mountain range. Notice that image there, right there in verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon. What is Hermon? It's Mount Hermon. It's a mountain range 92 feet high in the north, the northern tip of Israel. 60 inches of rain annually fall there. The mountains are snow-capped. The mountains of Zion, 200 miles south a completely different climate zone. And there's no way the dew, literally, of Mount Hermon traveled 200 miles south to reach, the, reach Jerusalem. But the dew was a part of an integral moisture cycle on the mountain. The dew formed at night. It froze. The snow fell and it, it stayed there. The snow eventually melted and it rolled down the mountains. And those very waters, they feed the water in the Rift Valley. And they form the headwaters of Upper Jordan River. And this river flows south and empties into the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee flows into the Jordan River, which flows into the Dead Sea which empties into the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee, I, I mean, you, you get this image of this great big mountain range and, and all of what's going on there in the moisture cycle. And by God's providence, it drifts all the way down into Jerusalem. And what's the point? In a dry and parched land in the south, 
the moisture from Mount Hermon is refreshing and life-giving. It's satisfying and it's vital. And David says, that is what unified togetherness is like. It's like water for thirsty souls. It's like calm in the midst of a storm. Like having a river in the middle of a drought. Doesn't this feel like we need this in times that we live right now? It feels like both are being threatened. Our togetherness and our unity. Nothing perhaps in our lifetime, is making it as difficult to dwell together as this pandemic. Dwelling together has given way to living apart. It's literally, physically dangerous to sit across from God's people. It has dire consequences on our bodies. But I'm being convinced that not dwelling together is having a dire effect on our souls. Don't be surprised if you experience more sadness right now, more loneliness, more irritability, more fear more frustration, more anger. Don't be surprised that you feel more impulses to numb more and drink more in order to escape. More anger is growing in our hearts as we give ourselves more to the news and other things. New idols are springing up, or old idols are resurfacing with a vengeance. We've lost a lot since March. But one of the greatest things we've lost begins with the sea, and it's not control. We never had that. We've lost connection. And yet there is still something good and pleasant, as important to us as the sun is, And that's being with the family of God. Our virus is threatening this. But would we not fight and adapt and get creative with saving an earth? Should we not adapt and be creative and fight to be together? I'm not telling you how to fight, but I'm telling you it's worth the fight. It's worth the patience. It's worth the inconvenience of looking at a screen. And maybe you stop tuning in consistently, virtually, as your pastor call you to repent. It's good and pleasant 
when we can gather, even if it's through a camera. Maybe you're going everywhere but church. Our team, we're happy to walk with you through everything that we're doing to make this as safe as possible. And it isn't because we just want to see numbers here. It's because it's good and it's pleasant when God's people can gather. It's a gift. And maybe you've not called anyone that you've turned inward during this pandemic. And it's about you and it's about your family and it's about your life and it's about your job. And maybe there are people in this congregation who have it worse than you and they need a phone call and need an email. They need to drive by and say, come outside. I just want to lay my eyes on you and let you know I love you and I'm praying for you. And maybe you need to go to Sam's and buy a $79 white plastic table that's eight feet long. And you put a mask on and you put it in your driveway and you invite someone over. And you tell them to mask up and to bring whatever they're eating and whatever they're drinking. And you sit across from one another. And you lay your eyes on a fellow member. I'm not telling you how to fight, Redeemer. You have liberty and you have freedom. But what we cannot do is not fight. It's good and it's pleasant that we dwell, that we linger, that we are with the body. It's good, says David, says the Lord. Life, compassion, empathy, wisdom, correction, laughter, learning, hope and grief, change, encouragement, friendship, they all happen in the context of relationships. Satan is called a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you know how lions hunt. They, they try to separate someone from the body and then they're vulnerable. I think we're not only going to see a wake of dead bodies after this pandemic. We're going to see hurt souls and lonely people. We can do more. What about the other chord? The world is trying to force us to choose a side all the time. You fill out an application. Are you black or are you white or are you Hispanic? Are you male or are you female? What's your income level? What's your highest level of education? Right? Like, like, like the, the world operates to, to divide us. Do blue lives matter? Do black lives matter? Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? Should we be meeting? Should we not be meeting? Is the problem policing or is it inner city violence? This is a trick of the enemy. It's trying to make us or people. Where you have to be this or this. And Jesus is saying that we can be and people. The church is the only institution when you examine its source documents 
and the one who is at the center of the kingdom, Jesus, you start to see that all types of people are grafted into one glorious family, that thieves and adulterers and murderers and kings and princes and the poor and peasants and Jewish eunuchs and Ethiopian eunuchs and men and women and children, those who are set apart in the womb and then those who meet Jesus on their deathbed on a cross, Jews and Gentiles consider the 12 apostles that Peter, James, John, and Andrew were unlearned fishermen. And they journeyed with Levi, who sold his soul to the government and was a tax collector. And next to him was Simon, the zealot, who wanted to overthrow the government. And somehow this group of men from all walks of life, from all different political leanings, somehow, someway, they're together. And you get Nicodemus, who is a scholar. You get Mary Magdalene and Susanna and Joanna. R.C. Sproul says, Jesus' early followers, they represent the church in miniature. The DNA of the church is diverse unity. It means that we ought to welcome and long for people from all walks of life. And when the world sees us in the midst of our diversity, united, it points them to Jesus. It makes them say, if God can unite this person and this person through Christ, then maybe he can unite me to him. I think we need to stop. Talking bad about the bride of Christ. We need to stop trying to advance our agendas on social media to prove a point. You want to start a post? You start this one. Tell me what believers from every age have in common. Go. Start that one. Last point, what's the source, the hope of our unified togetherness? What is it that makes us desire togetherness? What is it that gives us this unity? There are good things that unite us and move us to wanting to be together. Common sorority, common fraternity, common family, common ethnicity, common major, common occupation, common kindred spirits, common neighborhood. Those are all good things, but they're not ultimate. The togetherness and unity that God is after isn't found there. For him, it's found ultimately in one place. And you got to be okay with restrictive ordering here. Notice that David talks about Mount Hermon, and he talks about Mount Zion. And I'm just telling you, Mount Hermon is, by earthly standards, much, 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 much more impressive. And David says, but that's not where the blessing of God comes from. 
Look at it, what he says in verse 3, for there, where is the there? It's from the mountains of Zion. From there, the Lord has commanded the blessing and life forevermore. It's in our psalm next week, Psalm 134.3, may the Lord bless you from Zion. So of all the mountain ranges, of all the cities, of all the places on all the earth, the Lord says there's one place where I will dwell, where my temple will be. And inside the temple, the holiest of holies, it's one place on earth of everywhere. In other words, it's going to be found there. And this helps explain the other image. David brings up Aaron. And David was not even alive to know Aaron. And yet he knows something about the ministry of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. You know what else he was? He was the first high priest. The first one to go into the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, as high priest. And that once a year. That with making atonement and offering. And David says, somehow this unified togetherness, it's like that first day when that oil that only priests could mix, that could not be imitated or made any other way or used by any other person except for this, it's like that day. That day when that oil was poured on the head of Aaron and that oil in that copious amount flowed down to Aaron's beard and it flowed from Aaron's beard onto his priestly garments and right there on the priestly garments were stones and on those stones were inscribed the names of every tribe of Israel and that oil of God literally came down and it poured on and went over all of the tribes of God thereby signifying peace and unity and access and family and he says it's like that It's God pouring out peace upon his people. Did you notice the flowing down language in the text? That the precious oil, it runs down. That the oil runs down on the collar of his robes. The dew in verse 3, it, it, it falls down on the mountains of Zion. Why this gravity language? Why this start up top and come down? It's because David is pointing us to this reality that our unified togetherness is going to come from on high. That mankind cannot conjure this up. That it has to come from on high and come upon us. You do know that the oil that Aaron Ford did not ultimately unify God's people. That generation didn't even make it into the land of promise. The peace that David experienced 
was only short-lived. The 12 tribes were fighting again in Solomon's life. The 10 northern tribes followed Jeroboam. They had calf worship in the north. They were carried off by the Assyrians. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, held it together a little longer, but they were deported by the Babylonians. And so when the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 shows up, she says, our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. And what does Jesus say? You're right, but it's a new day coming. And you worship God not on a mountain, not in that place anymore. You're going to worship God and come to God and experience his unity and his togetherness through me. God's blessing is going to flow not from Jerusalem, but from me, says Jesus. I'm the Messiah. He knew that we needed something greater from above than the dew to join us together. We need something greater than the oil poured over our names to unite us. We need someone greater than Aaron to mediate for us. We need someone greater than Abner to die to bring an end to our warring. We need someone greater than David to write about the goodness of unity. We need someone to actually go and die for it. And it's Jesus. The gospel tells us that he traveled a greater distance than Mount Hermon to Jerusalem. He left the right hand of God to come to the earth. That he shed his own blood, not oil, his own blood to cover us and to make us white as snow. And as we come to the cross, we are forced to grapple with this beautiful and sobering reality. Many things about us are different. And diversity is beautiful, but at the cross, we realize that we're alike. Our problem is our own sin, and there has been given one name amongst all men by which we must be saved, and his name is Jesus, and he is a better priest who does not just offer a sacrifice. He offers and lays down his own life to be the sacrifice. And like Abner, like his death, was not only to squash the beef between us, it's to squash the beef between us and the Lord. And this is why he prays in the high priestly prayer. He says, I do not pray only for these right here, but I pray for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And we believe that Jesus just didn't talk about unified togetherness. He died to bring it about. That we would desire one another and be united to one another now and forever. In the movie, The Black Panther, in the final scene, King T'Challa is fighting Killmonger. And they're fighting below. And above the ground, the tribes are fighting. Okeye, a woman who is from the Dora Malaje, 
is fighting her own husband, Wakabi. And he's from the border tribe. He summons his rhino to kill another member of another tribe from the tribe of the Jabari. And Okaye stops the rhino in his tracks. She pulls out her spear and she says, please surrender. And he replies, would you kill me, my love? And there's a pause. And she says, for Wakanda, I will. And he looks and he surveys the warring and the fighting of the tribes. And he lays down his weapons. And once he lays down his weapon, the rest of the tribes follow suit. They have a king who's in the bowel, who's fighting to unify. Because of what he's doing down there, they can lay their weapons down and enter into this unified family that he is guarding. May that be our posture. Not fighting one another, but enjoying the unity that our king has already won for us. May that be so for us, Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for knitting our hearts together in love. Thank you for making us your people. Lord, help us to look at one another with deep, affectionate eyes, the same eyes that you have for your bride. Father, I pray for forgiveness, that we are often divisive, we are often isolated and selfish. Would you, O Lord, restore our gaze upon you and one another rightly? I pray for those of us who are living in fear, myself included. Would you, Lord, give us this sense of longing to be with your bride, and would you satisfy us with that? Thank you, Lord, for all that you've done. May you continue to guide and protect your church. I pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.